0: Uh, Again, it's a joy to welcome you to Freedom, and now uh, it's also a joy to welcome in those of you who are joining us online. Welcome to Freedom Online. Glad to have you be a part of the day with us today. We are in a series entitled Simplify. This is a good series for you to take part in. Maybe you haven't been in church in a while, or maybe it's uh, your first time with us. Hey, this is a great time to jump on board as we're looking at a series that I hope you're finding to be encouraging because it's not about making a longer list of things you need to do. It's about simplifying your life. where we're going to talk about moving from being in a place of being financially stressed to being truly blessed. How many of you would receive that today? That you would love to go from being under... ...that we're going to talk about anything that touches on finances, a lot of people just kind of pucker up right there in that moment. It's like, oh, I don't want to hear about money today. I want to just tell you on the front end, today is good news. Today is about you getting to a good place of blessing that's going to lighten your load. We said as we started this series that there are four words that, that tend to characterize a lot of our lives that we would love to just get rid of from our vocabulary and experience, and they are words like overwhelmed overscheduled, overstressed, and exhausted. Wouldn't you love to just never be able to say those things about your life ever again? I'm not going to promise you that today, but I will make you this promise, that if you'll apply what we're talking about, you're going to experience a lot less of the overstressed and the overwhelmed, as we're going to attack those words head on today. When I hear people talk about their levels of stress and how overwhelmed they feel in life, it seems like those tend to... Tie back into financial issues for many people. Feeling like there's more month than there is paycheck. You ever run into that problem? When the check ran out, there was still more months left. Or just feeling like there's this stuff looming out there. Yeah, what about the kids' college? What about retirement? I've, if I'm just barely making ends meet, how am I going to deal with these things that I know are coming? The tires are going to have to be replaced. This car is wearing out. The roof is going to have to be replaced. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And when we start thinking about it, it's easy to get to a place where we just feel overwhelmed. I'm going to share with you today some truth from God's Word that will leave us where we don't ever have to feel overwhelmed about finances again. And we're going to look together, at the, at least at the beginning point, at one little short story. It's just our kicking off place, but it's in Luke 19. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn there with me. As we look at a, an encounter between Jesus and a semi-familiar character from the New Testament. Uh, he was a notorious guy. His name was Zacchaeus. And if you grew up in church and Sunday school, you sang about him. You remember, he was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. You remember this guy, the tax collector. And uh, the story that we read about him is just this one-time encounter that he has with Jesus that radically changed his life. Now, before we dive into the story, I want to just go ahead and sort of set the stage for what I'm going to talk about today by just saying this. If you've been around here for very long, you know that at Freedom... Freedom is much more than just the name of our church. We called this Freedom Church because we want this to be a place that people truly experience real freedom in their lives. But we know that you don't get to a place of freedom without having to work through a process of getting from unhealthy habits and ways of thinking to a much healthier way of, of thinking and relating and doing life. We understand that there are some biblical principles that we have to put into practice if we're going to ever get free from the things that really hold us in bondage. And that's why Celebrate Recovery is such a huge part of who we are and what we believe in because CR has at its centerpiece a biblical plan for helping you work through the worst of life's hurts, habits, and hang-ups that will just keep you tangled up. You know it's the 12-step plan. It's the original 12-step plan that is centered on Christ. And if you're familiar with the 12-step plan at all, you'll know that the beginning point for anyone who's needing any form of recovery, and if certainly if you've ever dealt with like drug addiction or alcohol addiction and trying to get free from those things. And by the way, I know people so quickly want to equate Celebrate Recovery with substance abuse. It's helpful to know less than half the people who are in CR are dealing with substance abuse. These principles apply for breaking free from so many other areas. But if you've worked the steps, even begun to work the steps, you know that the beginning point for recovery is always getting to a place of realizing that you have a problem. And it's a problem that's too big for you to handle and that it has made your life unmanageable. And until you get to that place, you're wasting your time. You need not waste your time coming to CR. You need not waste your time pretending to be in a recovery plan. Because unless you have a problem that is bigger than what you can handle, you're not going to access the help that's available to you. So you start by acknowledging that this is a problem. It's a bigger problem than I can manage. And then the next step is getting to a place of realizing that you're going to have to have help from a power that is beyond you. That you're going to have to have God's help in order to bring some sanity back into your life. Because it's that big of a problem. And of course the secular version of this is you just reach out to a higher power. We understand that there is only one higher power that can help us to restore sanity in the chaotic parts of our lives. And so then when you get to the third step, that's about being willing to submit your life Your plans, your will to Christ's care and control so that now you can have his power available to actually change in you what you can't change. If you've been around this place for very long, if you've been around people in recovery at all, you're very familiar with those beginning steps to recovering not only from drugs or alcohol or porn addiction, but from all kinds of things, from, from bitterness and, and from just the heartache of, of loss to, to death or divorce. There's so many different things that this applies to. But what I want you to see today is that those same principles apply in a huge way. To the financial strongholds that we have in our lives. And the character that we're looking at as we start today, Zacchaeus, had a tremendous financial stronghold in his life. It had crippled him in every way in life. He had become a total pariah. No one wanted anything to do with this little man. And his life was miserable because of the financial strongholds that he had. And he actually came to a point of realizing that he had a problem that was bigger than his ability to just try harder and be better and that he needed help from a power beyond himself. And that was the point at which he was willing to reach out and try and connect with Jesus and a power beyond himself. That's the story we read in the opening of Luke chapter 19 where Luke tells us, that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, so not only was he a dirty dog, but he was a high-ranking dirty dog. He was wealthy. Here he is, the most talked about guy in all of Israel, is passing through Jericho. The whole town is abuzz. You know, might we see some miracles? Might he stick around for a little while? You know, who's going to get close to him and hear what he has to say? And he picks out the dirtiest dog in town and says, hey, I have got to go to your house today. I want to eat with you. And you can just hear the crowd grow silent and people are gasping and beginning to whisper. Does he know who he's talking with? Verse 6. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Who would have thunk Jesus with sinners? He's gotten a bad habit of this. Now there is a significant gap between verses 7 and 8. Luke is always giving us a very compressed version of the story. He does not record any of the conversation that happens between Jesus and Zacchaeus. So... You just have to let your imagination sort of fill in the blanks. What we get is the end result of that conversation. We start out with the dirtiest scumbag in town and Jesus having lunch with him. And what we get in verse 8 is the... Amen and amen. That is a great story. And it's not just a great story because a little dirty dog of a man got saved. There is more that happens in those ten verses in terms of life life transformation than any story that I know of in the entire Bible. And that's not an exaggeration. Let me explain what I mean when I say that. Every single one of us... Everyone, to a man and woman here, we all come into the world in need of three different major reconciliations. And until you experience these, your life is jacked up. It just is. You must experience three different kinds of reconciliation in order to have peace and order, stability, and some sense of real healthy normalcy to your life. Zacchaeus had none of these at the beginning of the story. And it is the only story I can think of in the entire Bible where in the span of one day, one man gets to experience all three reconciliations at the same time. That's what's so powerful about this story. Let me take just a moment to unpack that. First of all, we all understand that everybody comes into the world in need of spiritual reconciliation. You know what we mean when we say reconciliation. Two people who are at odds with each other being made right with one another. We're all born in need of spiritual reconciliation. Nobody was born into the world a Christian. Being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a Buick. It just doesn't. You have to be reconciled to God to be made a Christian. And so Zacchaeus certainly needed that. And in Jesus, he discovered how to do that. The, the answer to that question, how do I get reconciled to God, is not complicated. Jesus said a child can understand this. Faith is how you get there. There are things you have to believe in order to be reconciled to God. You have to believe the truth about Jesus, that he's the sinless son of God who came into this world, who lived and physically died on a cross for our sins. He bore in his body the punishment that our sins deserved, and he was raised from the dead by God the Father as a demonstration that he had accepted Jesus' death as a sacrifice for our sins. You have to believe that, and you have to believe that if you'll ask him, Jesus will come and your life, that He'll forgive your sins, make you right with God, and that He will, from that point on, His Spirit will live in you and begin transforming you to be more and more like Him. If you believe that, you can be reconciled with God. That's the most important thing that ever happens in your life. Many of us have experienced that reconciliation. If you have not, you can do that today. You don't have to train for it. You don't have to study up or take a class to do it. It's that simple. Zacchaeus was reconciled to God on that day. But here's the amazing thing. He didn't just experience spiritual reconciliation. There's a second reconciliation we all need, and that is a relational reconciliation. Because of how broken we are, we all screw up relationships. Amen? I mean, in big ways. Think about the people in your life That you just are freaked out at the thought of ever having to be around again because of how broken the relationship is. Maybe because of something they've done to you or what you've done to them. But we wind up fracturing relationships and we need so desperately to have those reconciled. If you've ever worked through the 12 steps, you know very well how much relational reconciliation is a huge part of the equation. So many times when people are acting out in very unhealthy ways, it's because of relational brokenness. They're so at odds with somebody really critical in their lives. Oftentimes it's a parent or a spouse. It's somebody that close to them that the relationship has not been what it was supposed to be at all. And when that's fractured, we feel broken and messed up because of that. And then we'll try and self-medicate whether we're using drugs or alcohol or sex or pornography or whatever it is. We'll try and, and address that thing in an in a appropriate and unhealthy way and what recovery helps you to do biblical recovery is to go back and address those relational issues go back and make those things right well how cool is that Zacchaeus is diving right into that from day one I mean what's his response in all of this I'm going to go out I'm going to find everybody I can think of I'm going to make a list of everybody that I've wronged, everybody that I've cheated, because the thing that's haunting the chaos is that everyone hates him and he deserves it. Because he's been cheating everyone. That's what tax collectors did. They're Jews who aligned themselves with the Romans to tax their own people and they robbed them in the process and lined their own pockets. He had gotten wealthy at the expense of his, his Jewish brothers and sisters who were already poor to begin with. And he realizes, if I get right with God, I have to go and make things right with all of my brothers and sisters out here. And so the first thing that he does is he gets busy working on relational reconciliation, going out and seeking out the people that he's done wrong and hurt. And he says, I'm going to go above and beyond to do everything in my power to make it right with him, including paying full restitution. I'm not just going to pay back what I took. I'm going to pay back four times what I took. That's another sermon for another day. But relational reconciliation is a key part of getting to a healthy place in life. But here's the thing we're going to home in on today. There's a third reconciliation everybody needs in life. And it is the one that most Christians leave, at least Western Christians, apparently leave unaddressed, fail to experience, and they live stressed out and jacked up because of it. And that is financial reconciliation. We all need spiritual reconciliation with God. We need relational reconciliation with the people around us that that we've gotten at odds with. And we need financial reconciliation. And you may think, well, that's a strange thing to list as the big three. It may seem like it, but let me tell you, it's at the heart of what Jesus talked about almost constantly. If you go back and you unpack everything that is recorded that came from the lips of Jesus in all of the Gospels... These are the first four books of the New Testament that tell us of the life, teaching, and ministry of Jesus. If you just measure, if you count how many words Jesus used to address all the different subjects that he talks about in the Gospels, number two, the second most talked about thing on the lips of Jesus was this issue our need, our need for financial reconciliation, talking about money and possessions. Wealth and greed. Why did he talk about this so much? Because he understood, for one, the incredible power that these things have over us. And he knew how crippling that would be for us. You know, it it came as a revelation for me, not so long ago, that part of the reason that Jesus talked about this, as much as he did... Is because he understood something that escapes most most of us in relation to this. I need for you not to miss this. This is very significant. You know in Matthew 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, you can't serve two masters because you're going to hate one and love the other or else you're going to love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Remember that passage? You ever noticed... Now, some translations will say "Mammon," and some will say "money." Have you ever noticed both of those are capitalized? You should always think that was kind of odd. Why does that need to be capitalized? I'll tell you why it's capitalized. Because it is a proper noun, it's identifying not just a concept but a person, Mammon. This is a a spirit of greed. I mean literally. A spirit of greed. And Jesus is trying to help us understand that you either put him first place in your life, and you serve him, or you find yourself serving someone else. Not just a concept, but a driving spirit. His name is Mammon. Their names are Mammon. They operate under the covering of Mammon. The control, the desire for money... And I want to tell you, I can't think of any other more pervasive spiritual struggle in American culture than the spirit of mammon. Not sex, not alcohol, not drugs. Everything else, in my opinion, pales in comparison to the spiritual domination of the spirit of mammon. Not just in American culture, in American church culture. And we oftentimes fail to recognize what a hold it has on us because the climate around us is so identical to what's inside of us. It's like, well, I'm no different than everybody else I go to church with. That's not a word of encouragement probably for us personally. It's probably more of an indictment of all of us that we live under the control of money. Now, Zacchaeus... He came to grips with that, and it was maybe easier for him to come to grips with how much mammon was the spirit in control of him. He probably couldn't name what the issue was, but he could see that something was wrong because everybody around him wasn't wealthy compared to the rest of the world. He lived in a world of poverty, and yet he was the rich man at the expense of everyone around him. It was tormenting him. He knew something was so wrong about this, and he needed to change, and yet it was a spiritual stronghold in his life. He could not get free from it on his own like any other addiction or spiritual stronghold. It was going to take a power beyond himself to get free from the spirit of mammon, and that's true for a lot of us today. Until you realize the depth of this problem, you won't get to a better place because it's going to take a power bigger than you and me to break the control of the spirit of mammon over us. Zacchaeus was desperate enough that he reached out to Jesus by climbing a tree, strategically placing himself to get close to Jesus. And when Jesus passed by that way, Jesus reached out to him. That's a great little reminder that when you're desperate and you reach out to God, God always reaches back out to you. I can't tell you how he's going to do it, but you can bank on this. He will do it. And as Zacchaeus reached out to Jesus by climbing that tree. Jesus reached out to Zacchaeus and wound up saying, let's go to your house and talk about it. Can you picture what that must have been like? I'm guessing they're probably going to the nicest house in town. Don't you wish we could see a, you know a TV show that would show us cribs of Jericho, <laughs> 30 AD? I wonder what his crib looked like. I bet it was big. I guarantee you it had a big fence, a big wall around the yard, and a really strong gate to keep those poor beggars out. He probably had the nicest furniture in town, some nice artwork on the walls. Can you just picture, as, as Zacchaeus is leading Jesus to his house... If you've ever visited third world countries, and I've been to quite a few of them... One thing that you'll observe is where there's all this abject poverty... The poorest of the poor will always migrate to places where they're going to brush up against people who've got money. They figure out where the tourists are going to pass through. And they congregate there and do this. They hold out their cups and their buckets. And, and they just hope for a handout. So I can only imagine that at the gate to Zacchaeus' house... That's probably a popular spot that the beggars came to hang out because he's the richest guy in town. Just hoping that maybe the the rich man's just got a little something extra that he'll pass out. I I can only imagine how Jesus and Zacchaeus had to kind of work their way through some poor beggars just to get in the rich man's house. How uncomfortable is that moment? Walking with Jesus through poverty that you obviously don't give a rip about. Oh, I got to tell you, that, that thought... Comes way too close to my life, living in a world where it's so comfortable for us, but where today, nine hundred million people are starving to death. Nine hundred million. It's tough to walk places with Jesus and ignore the people in need, isn't it? Zacchaeus probably has to pass through some beggars to get Jesus in his house. But when they had gone in the house and talked, he came out a different man, and he had a different outlook on those people. And he was willing to do the things to experience not just spiritual reconciliation, not just relational reconciliation, but true financial reconciliation. Truly made right with God where money no longer had control over him and he could live with real joy and peace in life. And with the time that we've got left, that's what I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking to you about. There are five very practical, straightforward things that you and I must do if we're going to experience spiritual peace. If we're going to move from a place of being stressed to being blessed. And I'm telling you, this isn't complicated. But this really needs to be a checklist for us as we go down the line to say, Okay, have I done this? Am I actively doing this in my life? And it starts with the simplest. We'll say number one. I must begin by believing that all that I possess has come my way from God's hand. Let me ask you this. Did you get where you are today because you worked hard? Because you tried more than, than the people around you? Or did you get where you are today because God is good and kind and he lavished it on you? Which is it? We got here because God is good, didn't we? James reminds us in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect present comes from heaven. It comes down from God. Now, certainly we have a role to play. He expects us to work. People who work hard and who apply themselves experience blessing as a result of that. But we never need to lose sight of what the word says in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when he says, But remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So I mean when you get to the heart of the matter, you are where you are. I am where I am because there is a gracious God who pours out on us so much more than we deserve. Hey, whatever smarts you've got, you didn't acquire them. God gave you your mind, God gave you your drive, God gave you your passions, God gave you the opportunity for education, God birthed you where you are. I mean, if you were born in Bangladesh, you think you'd be wearing what you're wearing today? We enjoy what we enjoy because the gracious God lavished on us what we didn't deserve. And I'm not talking down to us to say that, it's just that has to be the beginning point to realize God is good and it's all come from him. And once I can say that, then I can progress to the next piece. And that is to say, you know, I will learn to live with gratitude. When you realize that it all came from God to begin with, we can have gratitude for what we have received. Don't have it because I earned it. I don't have it because I deserve it. I have it because the gracious God supplied it. So I learned to live with gratitude and importantly, within God's current provision level for my life, this is where it's going to get sticky. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Philippians 4:12 and 13, where Paul said this. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. How many of you can say, I know both ends of that spectrum by personal experience? I've been in need, and I've had plenty. Been both places? Paul said, I have. I know what that's like. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content. Everybody say, being content. Well, that's a a key phrase and goal there. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. For a lot of people, I think we read that and think, that doesn't really make sense. I can be content whether I've got a lot or a little, whether I've got extra or seemingly not enough. I mean... Don't you just have to be a little bit goofy in the head to be content when you don't have enough? That's un-American. Americans aren't supposed to be content when they're in need, are they? Come on. That doesn't even sound American, does it? We're supposed to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We're supposed to get to a better place. Now listen, don't misunderstand. Content doesn't equal lazy. The two have nothing to do with each other. The New Testament and Old Testament, both are very clear on the teaching that work is a part of the equation. Parents, we're going to have to work hard, maybe harder than ever, at teaching this to the next generation. That hard work is a part of the equation, and it may not be fun. It may not thrill you every time that you do it. Contentment isn't about sitting around and waiting for the perfect job to come along. We have to do our part. But contentment is saying, when I do my part, when I engage in working and and just using my gifts and energy, whatever supply comes from that, I can rest in that and be content in that. I've lived long enough to know this. That my standard of living and my level of income has virtually nothing to do with my level of happiness in life. Amen. Have you lived long enough to appreciate that? Right. I couldn't say that when I was a younger man. I mean, I wouldn't have ever said this, but I absolutely believed when I was younger, the more money you have and the bigger house and the, you know, the nicer stuff, the happier you're going to be. And it really does take some life experiences to get you to the place of realizing, mm-mm, I can look back and realize some of the happiest times of my life were some of the lowest times financially. There's no correlation between wealth and stuff and happiness. And Paul said, I get this. I've learned to be content. And he says, here's the secret of contentment in all circumstances, that I can do all things through Christ. What's that about? It just boils down to this. When I'm following Christ and when I'm putting into practice the financial principles that we're talking about today, my welfare is God's deal. It's not mine. It's his deal to make sure that I'm taken care of. Now, yes, I've still got to you know, report for work and, and do my piece in that. But beyond that, I don't have to stress about how am I going to take care of myself? How am I going to take care of my family? What are we going to do for retirement? I don't have to fret over those things. That's God's deal. It's up to Him to take care of us. Jesus gave a long talk about this, right, in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you fret about all of these things. You're worried, worried, worried. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And He says, don't you get it? God takes care of the flowers of the field, and they're scorched and gone by tomorrow. He takes care of the birds of the air. They don't live very long, and He feeds them every single day. Don't you think He's concerned for you? Why are you worried about these things? Paul said, I've just learned. Whether I've got a lot or a little, it's okay because God has never lost sight of me. He's watching a sparrow. He's certainly watching me. Can you say today, I want to be joyfully content with whatever my level of provision is from God's hand? Can you say that? Now, that's a hard question. Do you want to learn to be content today with whatever God's level of provision is for you today? Because the alternative is not a good one. The alternative is, no, I want more. I want a little more money. I want a little more stuff because I really think I'd be happier then. And here's the thing you must understand about that. That's the love of money. And if you love money and stuff, don't miss this. If you love money and stuff, you will never, ever be content in life. Mark it down. It's a spiritual law. The Word says it's a fact. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money will never have enough money. Whoever loves wealth will not be satisfied with it. Do you get the point? If you set your heart on money and stuff, you are never going to have enough money and stuff. John D. Rockefeller may have been the richest man of his generation. And somebody asked him one day, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And he just said a little more. That's profound. The richest man in his generation. And he said, I don't know how much enough is other than to tell you it's more than what I've got. It's more than what you've got. A little bit more. You get a little more and you're just going to need a little more. Solomon said that's how it always works. By the way, he was the richest man in his generation. He said, if you love money, you're never going to find a place of contentment. Contentment has nothing to do with how much you have. The fact of the matter is, we live in a world today where we can take control of our circumstances and we can manufacture what God doesn't provide. And that's where we get in trouble. There's a provision level that God has for your life for right now, for this season. Let this sink in. God has a level of provision for your life and it's probably not the same as my life or the same as the lives next to you. It may be above or below in terms of financially and materially what that looks like. But right now in this season, God has a particular provision level for your life for this season. And it's enough. By his wisdom and design, it's enough. But if you don't agree that it's enough... You can bypass that. You absolutely can. And you know how. We can sum it up in two words. They both mean pretty much the same thing. Credit. Debt. That's what those things accomplish. They allow us to bypass God's provision level for our lives. And we say, well, that may be God's provision, but that ain't enough. I want more. And I can have more. The bank said I can. The credit card company said I can. I'm going to get more. Now, listen, I'm not saying all debt is sin. If God had wanted to say that, He would have said it in His Word. He did not. Financial advisors and and brighter economic minds by far than, than I have, have pretty much all agreed that there are a couple of things that just from a financial analysis standpoint, in the right circumstances, are worthy of going into debt for, and that is buying a home and getting an education. That in the long haul, under the right circumstances... Choosing to buy a home can be a good investment. You know, you're gaining equity as you go along, and, and you're, if you're there long term, it gains value typically. So that can be a wise investment that's worth going into debt for, getting an education. If you finish it and apply it, it can be worth going into debt for. But pretty much, all economists agree, there's not anything else that you'll ever borrow money for that is a sound financial investment. You're just putting yourself in a hole. We're saying God's provision isn't enough. And so what we wind up with is a a debt load that begins to be stressful and overwhelming for us. With a net effect that in American culture today, 90% of young couples who get married, it is no longer a question of whether the wife and the husband both will work. It is an absolute financial necessity because they've committed themselves to a lifestyle that requires two incomes to pay off all the debts and pay all the bills. The interesting twist on this, and I won't chase this rabbit far, but it's interesting to note, particularly of women in the workforce, that 50% of women who work because they just want to work and enjoy it, 50% say that they are happy, content, and enjoy the job that they go to. That's not great, but that's decent. 50% say that. But did you know that of wives who work because they have to work, only one in seven say that they find any contentment or joy in it? Six out of seven are miserable doing it if they work because they have to. When you embrace a lifestyle where there's lots of debt and lots of have to financially, it pretty much guarantees we're not going to be happy. We've bought into a lie that says, if we just have more, we'll be happier. And you won't. Paul begins this little statement. This little teaching with the statement, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. One of the things, I mean, I know this is so elementary, but it's got to be said out loud. One of the things that we've got to accept is that it is by God's design, it is consistently the case, that we are all going to experience an ebb and flow financially. We're all going to have seasons of abundance, and we're all going to have seasons of real need. I want you to think for a second about the neediest, financially the neediest time in your life. When was it? I know the first thing that comes to mind for me, I mean I know exactly when it was, 26 and a half years ago, the birth of my first child. When Whitney was born, now, I'm just going to make a confession to you, I got married before I should have. I got married when I was 20 years old. I may have been, may have been emotionally ready for it, I certainly was not financially we suffered as a result of that. I had six and a half more years of college and graduate school still to go. I mean, it was, it was tough. And we had a child before our second anniversary. And working multiple jobs while going to school. Couldn't afford health insurance. This was before that was a crime. So we, we birthed a baby without health insurance. I would not recommend it. That's, that's not a great plan. Now, we had savings... And we were doing our best, I will say this, doing our dead-level best to honor the Lord in our giving. And the Holy Spirit had led us to give at a level that we had both never experienced before. I mean, we were giving way, way more than a tithe. Through that season of our lives, when we were earning about the least that we ever would in our lifetimes, we were giving consistently 30%, and in some portion of that time, giving 40% of everything that passed through our hands, we were giving back to the Lord. Which was really challenging to do, because we weren't making a lot, and... So we lived, we we were learning to live on less. And then a baby came into the picture. And we're trying to figure out how are we going to pay for this. And God made some miraculous provision in that. But part of it is we we literally cleaned out our savings. And I'll, I'll never forget, on the week that Whitney was born, we wrote the check for the final balance. So that when we went to the hospital for her to be born, every single dime of that had been paid. That's the good news. The scary part is there was nothing left. Savings account balance was zero. We barely had two nickels to rub together, and it's the only time I can ever remember in my adult life that we came the closest to having no food whatsoever in the house. I mean, I'm not exaggerating on this one. I I can still so see it in my mind, living in that little duplex on the railroad tracks. In our pantry, the only food we had in the house on the weekend that Whitney was born, we had an apple apple. One apple and two cans of tuna fish. Now, the good news is I like apples and tuna fish. The bad news is there was one apple and there were two cans of tuna fish. And the really intimidating part about that was when we went to the hospital for her to be born, family all descended on the place. And the plan was for them to come and stay at our house. And it was like, I hope they like apples and tuna fish. (laughs) Because that's all that's there. And I remember... That was like the one really stressful part because we were so happy that God had provided and we were thrilled that we had been able to pay for all of it and had not missed a meal. But we knew we were going home to an apple and two cans of tuna fish and didn't know what the family was going to do when they stayed at the house. And, and you can imagine, I mean, God took that and turned it into a blessing. They, they blessed us with some groceries while they were there. God's always found a way to provide. The reason I, I just share that snapshot It's tempting to think that if you're in a season where you've got your version of an apple and two cans of tuna fish to go, Well, God must not love me. Or I must be disobedient somewhere. I can't think of a time in my life when God has had me more committed to giving and giving more sacrificially than I was through that entire season. And sometimes when you're giving like crazy... You just see financial blessing like crazy. And sometimes you look at an apple and tuna fish and say, oh, God, let that be loaves and fishes right there. Bless the daylights out of that, because I'm not sure how we're going to replace those. It's normal that there will be seasons of abundance and seasons where there's nothing to spare. And the good news is wherever you are, you won't stay there. If we always lived with abundance, there are some things we would forget that are critically important for us to never lose touch with. And if we always lived in need, we'd come to think that, that God doesn't love us and that he isn't attentive to our needs. That God doesn't lavish grace on us. So this is a normal part of the process and we must learn the key to being content and in being content, we can then learn to live with some margin. Whatever I earn, I'm going to learn to spend a little less than what I earn. Because I understand margin plus contentment is what equals peace. Just remember, God didn't set you free from sin to then allow you to live in, in bondage to debt for the rest of your life. Moving on to the third thing. I must choose to honor God by giving the first tenth of all of my earnings in the place where I worship. And I know we collectively... Tense up on that one, right? We shouldn't. Let me just say today, this place, it's a guilt free zone. Nobody's going to beat you up. Nobody's going to try and guilt you or shame you over what your past giving has or has not been. What we want today is to get to a place of peace and freedom. And the key principle is to remember blessing's going to follow obedience proverbs sums up very well the teaching of the bible concerning wealth it says honor the lord with your wealth and with the first and best part of all your income then your barns will be full and your vats will overflow with fresh wine again remember the principle blessing follows obedience suffering follows disobedience what we want is to turn that around don't we i want I want the blessing first, and then I'll be obedient. I mean, how many times do we think like that financially? I know I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. I know I'm not giving like I ought to be giving. But if God would just give me a better job, if God would just give me a big fat raise, I would so be generous then with that. No, you wouldn't. Not if you're not generous today. I mean, how many times have we said, oh, God, I'm telling you, if you just let me be the winner of that Powerball, I would tithe so fast. No, you wouldn't. If you make forty thousand dollars a year and you won't give God four thousand on forty thousand, you are smoking crack. If you think you would give God four million out of forty million, you would not do it. You would hold on to that for me. Yes, you would. It's just the truth. You've got to learn to be faithful in the little things before you have any hope of being faithful in the big things. Blessing follows obedience, and I want the blessing first. And you probably do too. There's that wonderful dialogue. You know I'm going there. I can't skip it. Wonderful dialogue at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi 3 where God is talking with His people. And He says... You live in this place of cursing. I mean, it's a parent who's just lovingly shaking his head and going, I I want you to be at a better place. I do. I want so badly for you to be a better place. But you live in this this place of cursing. And he said, you say back to me, well, why? And he says, it's because you're robbing me. And he said, you look at me and say, well, when do we rob you? And he said, you rob me every time you hold on to the tithes and offerings that you know you're supposed to bring to the place of worship. And he goes on and says in verses 10 and following there in Malachi 3, it's in your outline. He says, bring to the storehouse. That word was the term for the treasury in the temple. He's being very specific. I want you to bring to the place of worship. Bring to the storehouse a full tenth. Everybody say full tenth. He could have made it a complicated number. He made it one tenth. Bring to the storehouse a full tenth of what you earn so there will be food in my house. Test me in this. Only place in all the Bible God ever says that. It's the one place that He says, come on, try it out, kick the tires, give this a run, and see if it's not true. Test me in this, says the Lord all-powerful. I will. Say, I will. Not I might. Not I can. I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour out all the blessings you need. Circle that word, all. Not just a little bit. I'm going to lavish this on you. And he says to a a group of people who were farmers and herders, he says, I'll stop the insects so they won't eat your crops. The grapes won't fall from your vines before they're ready to pick, says the Lord All-Powerful. He's saying, I'm going to eliminate all this stuff that destroys your wealth.